Welcome to episode six of Community as a Verb, a show that talks about the tools for social action. We're talking about social media systems, processes, and strategies, and what we're doing to create the world that we want to see. My name is Connor Kaysen, your co-host here at Community as a Verb, and next to me via the powers of the internet is my astounding co-host, Mr. Well-Traveled. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. I love the intro. I always love the intro. It just lights, <laughs> makes my day like lightens my day too <laughs> excellent well mr well traveled good to see you again two weeks later yeah. uh it was kind of a wild time we we wanted to do an episode last week and yeah. then uh the election wasn't solved at least when we talked about it on friday night and it was like do we really want to do this with the election still like not officially confirmed and then we woke up saturday morning uh with the announcement of the election and was like oh we probably should have done it but that doesn't matter at this point. We're here now on Saturday, and uh, I'm very happy to see you. And so, yeah. um, how, how are you doing? What's been going on since two weeks ago when, when we saw you here on video? Uh, how, how are you dealing with the world right now? You know, I've been thinking a lot about the future. I mean, there's uh, we're in a, a moment of transition, right, in our country. But then also, uh, we've been living through a pandemic for the past uh, however many months now, eight, nine months. Where I don't know how many months we're in now. I've lost count. I, it used to be, I used to count by days and then weeks. And now, you know, we're months in and soon we'll be a year in, right? Uh, so, of course, I'm dealing with that, right? There's so much change all around us, whether it's the election, the pandemic, or even just life in general. There's, there's a lot happening. And I think for me, I'm thinking we're also at the end of a year, right? This is November. We're almost going into 2021. And as we uh, look forward, I'm thinking about what is next? What's next for me? What's next for our country? What's next for uh, the world? Yeah. And, and I'm glad you brought up the coronavirus because I think it's important to be documenting here in this time because it, it's, it's this, maybe the scariest week, right? When I think back of like how I felt in March and April and there was so much anxiety, right? Like that time it felt scary yeah. to go outside, right? And so now yeah. it's gone on, um, everyone's just gotten so much more comfortable with whatever the routine is. Uh, but we, I mean, I think we almost had a million cases this week. And Amanda told me a stat that she saw with, with a, a, almost a million people testing positive this week. That's one in like 350, 340 people in America alone tested positive this week. And that's really scary to see, um, you know, where we've come and, and what's going to happen, right? We're all kind of waiting yeah. for what's going to happen in every state and every city. Jay Inslee here in Washington put out an announcement that Oregon, California, and Washington are recommending if you're doing interstate travel that you do a 14-day quarantine and uh, a lot of the businesses here are kind of preparing for is a shutdown going to happen again um and and so how are you dealing just with the coronavirus and everything happening in the last couple of weeks well i mean you know it's here in texas uh texas this week um hit a million cases since the start of the pandemic and that has been all over the news um and but here it's a little bit different right the, the culture around masks has been highly politicized and around shutdowns as well so right now things are normal but the story on the news yesterday was 
is a shutdown coming, right? Are, and restaurants are starting to prepare here. And when you start hearing things like that, I remember back in March what that was like, thinking to myself, okay, maybe that'll happen, maybe it won't. And now I'm, you know, I, I feel like the pattern is repeating itself that maybe by the end of the month, we'll start to, we'll see at least one state shutdown. And then once, once that domino falls, I think we'll, we'll start to see more shutdowns. I think what's different this time around is I feel more prepared. I wasn't prepared in March when there was a shutdown, but I have masks, I have gloves, I have, you know, soap to wash my hands. I have hand sanitizer. I understand social distancing. I know what to do and where to go. I've got my Amazon account popping. Like, I mean, it, the, the packages keep coming. Like it, I'm good, right? In that regard, like I'm, I'm ready for this. And we've been living through it for so long that um, I know that there are things that I'm just not going to do. I'm not going to travel. I'm not going to get on a plane. I'm not going to go to inside of a restaurant or a bar or a crowded space uh, for social reasons. I mean, I have been to doctor's appointments since the pandemic. I've gone and, you know, had to have my uh, cell phone service, things like that. But you know, unless it's something that's an absolute, this is the only way I can handle it. If I can't handle it over the phone or through the mail, um, you know, I know what precautions to take and I know what my level of comfort is. Um, and I'm very observant about my environment. You know, I, I know people around in Texas are not wearing masks. I know that, um, the weather is really nice here. And so people are out and people are doing things. And so, you know, I, I take advantage of all of the services that allow me to just avoid you know, being around large groups of people, curbside pickup for groceries and, and for Target if I need, you know, things. Using um, the mail system to have things delivered. Um, that seems to be right now the thing that makes me feel like I can handle this thing. But I, I am uncomfortable with the idea that the case count continues to rise because uh, at least right now, I don't know anyone directly who has been affected by the virus. But as the case count rises and the, the community spread grows, I imagine so at some point I will know someone and I hope that I'm not exposed to that person um, and then contract the virus myself like that. That is still a real concern for me. Yeah, definitely. And so earlier you're talking about like going to the doctor and going to the phones, like we're all learning about what things in, in our daily life are, are essential, right? The word essential yeah. has become uh, very much in the forefront of mm -hmm. how we make decisions. Uh, but one of the most essential things about being an American is voting in our elections. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a, okay. That was an interesting transition. I didn't know where you were going with that. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Everyone is well aware of last week and the election that we had, uh, the biggest turnout in voting history. And, in voting history. And a lot of very, very big surprises, right? Um, I, I think I was a little bit more optimistic than you were. I think you had a, a understanding of how that was going to go, and you had prepared yourself a lot for the election. Um, and if you want to start there, we can, but I also want to put out the question, uh, just to start, I just want to know, like, what was last week like for you, right? Hundreds yeah. of millions of us were glued to our television from Tuesday morning until at least Saturday, uh, if not beyond that. So, so walk us through kind of how you felt, what you did to prepare, how you dealt with, with the week and the anxiety of everything. 
you know, as we enter this discussion about how we felt about the last week and what's been going on, I really want to lay out this as my goal for this episode. And it's, and it's that I want this episode to be a letter to the future voters. And I wanted to, I want the future voters to remember this moment. What was very important to me as I started thinking about us having this conversation was that what we are about to do here is to document exactly how we felt, what happened, and at least as far as we can remember it. And I think by us recording this, this will last for as long as there is internet, right? And this is something that people can come back to as a way to be reminded of this moment, because I am very, very certain that this moment is both the continuation and the beginning of something. We have, we are living through a very significant year in history and we are living through a very significant election. And for me, as I started to prepare for what was to come, all of the chaos that we have seen, I was very uh, fortunate to be able to listen to a bunch of podcasts and read a bunch of articles that reflected upon 20 years ago in the 2000 election. And everything that started during that election, the strategy around um, contesting votes and going to the Supreme Court and all of the thinking around that and the emotion around that, that is present right now. And so it helped me to prepare mentally for what I should think about as someone who wants to see change. So I, I want the voters of the future to be able to come and have this as a resource, of one of many, because there's a lot out there that they can point, point back to, but I want to make sure that what we are providing is a resource for them to, to be able to say, what did happen in 2020? And how did people feel? And we're two people, we are regular people, we are also voters. And so this is our experience that we're about to share. I love that. Uh, a letter to the future voters, like that's the title, everybody. Uh, and, and so let's start first with a continuation of the previous episode. Give me a rundown about uh, the app that you created. It's your background of your yeah. book right now. Let's start there and then we'll go into uh, more detail about Tuesday in the week. Yeah. So, okay. So we were ready. We were ready for election day and I was so excited. And then Monday, I broke my glasses. <laughs> and so that, I had to go get a, some contacts. And so that was a funny thing, situation. Um, and then election day hit. App is on the app store. It's getting downloads. And we're watching the numbers go up. And I just, I, I didn't understand. I said, this doesn't make any sense. We have $0 marketing budget. How are people finding out about this? We have like 70 followers on Instagram. This doesn't make sense. I've promoted this mainly through word of mouth. I don't, I don't understand what's happening right now. And, um, you know, making the app available, keeping the data updated, part of that was manually on my part. And that was one of the things that I was doing. Um, it, it, that part was smooth. I had no, we had no, actually, we had one tech issue at the very beginning of the day. The website was down um, at the very beginning of the day. So around 6 a.m. So polls opened at 7. And so 6 a.m. I'm like, hey, the website's down. And luckily, DeMarcus was able to just jump right in and, and fix that problem. Um, but when I woke up that morning on Tuesday, 
Um, there was an announcement that had come out really late that night by the Harris County um, County Clerk. And basically what he said was that uh, due to the court ruling that happened the day before, so on Monday, regarding curbside voting or drive-through voting, I think was the official name of that one. So curbside is more like if you have a disability, then you can ask for uh, someone to come out to your car. But drive-through voting is you literally drive through like you're driving through at McDonald's or something like that. And uh, the ruling, uh, sorry, so the Republican Party contested uh, the votes that had been cast during early voting uh, through drive the drive-through method. And there were about 100,000 votes. And they wanted all of those votes to be thrown out. Well, a judge decided that those votes would not be thrown out, but that the, the setup for drive-through voting needed to be a permanent structure. And, and it was very clearly defined that the permanent structure had a foundation and a roof, a fixed roof. Well, all up, up until that point, drive-through voting had actually taken place via tents. So you could drive up to a tent and you would be serviced by a poll worker there. And people loved it. I mean, it was something that was being used by all types of people, all walks of life. Um, um, and I thought that that was a really cool innovation in voting, but the county clerk decided that to protect the vote going forward so that this challenge didn't come up again, he would just move to um, a different location for drive-through voting, and it was the Toyota Center. Well, unfortunately, I couldn't up that, update that information in the app um, in the way that I would have liked. So I had to manually just kind of like make a note at that location. And then there were about six other locations that were added the, the night before that we didn't have time to put into the app. But apart from that, that was our, our biggest problem. Now, I think, you know, so much of my time and effort and energy, right, was, had gone into creating this, this app to be used on election day. Here's the thing. We had um, over 1,400 downloads. We had definitely quite a bit of activity. I think the number was something like 3.8 searches per minute, something like that. So we had some activity. Um, but I am not so sure that it was, you know, really necessary for election day. And I'll tell you why. Because we had 1.6 million total voters during this entire election cycle. 1.4 of them voted during early voting. Wow. And although the app was live during early voting, it wasn't as functional as we wanted it to be for early voting. And so we were like focused solely on making sure we were ready for election day. 200,000 people voted election day and most of the polling places stayed green the entire day. So, so I should mention when I say green, I mean like green is like short weight, yellow is medium weight and red is like a long weight and, and, and at an unacceptable level. So like 40 minutes plus. So basically all of the polling locations for all 800 plus for almost the entire 12 hour period were had a 25 minute wait or less. There were very few instances during the day where I saw that a polling location had turned red. And so while I was very excited that we had all of these downloads and we had this activity, I'm like, there's nothing for people to look at and do because it's like, it's green, everything's green. They're good, they can go wherever they wanna go, they can vote, they're good. Oh man, well, what, what a lesson, right? Cause you probably just, you just didn't anticipate that. Um, yeah, I didn't. It speaks for uh, 
the preparedness of a lot of people, which, which is promising, and the fact that a lot of those early ballot drop locations were successful. There are yes. some positives that came out of Harris County, uh, but, but that's really interesting on kind of the things that you learned uh, and, and didn't anticipate. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't anticipate that at all. I just, it, it was an assumption. I mean, that's the thing. That's what happens in design, right? And that's what happens in entrepreneurship. You make, you make assumptions. And my assumption was wrong. I'm, I, but let me tell you, I want to be clear here. I am really happy at that turnout. I'm very happy that people did come out and vote early. I was, I, that engagement in the voting process is so cool. So yeah. I'm glad I had a tool that was ready, but I'm glad nobody, I, to be honest, I'm glad nobody really needed it. Yeah, that, that's a great point, right? It's one of those things was like, the, the fact that you didn't need to have the tool be used and makes, makes it show that there was some success within uh, a system that we both would agree uh, is fighting against those people a lot of times. I know we've talked about that quite a bit. In yeah. So, so let's, go yeah. Out, let's go outside the app, right? Um, and, and, and I'll start a little bit with, with Tuesday. Uh, we, we all go to bed on Monday. Tuesday's the big day. I know millions and millions of people were looking forward to it. I actually didn't submit my ballot early. Um, and voting day is always the same for me, no matter if it's a small... Um, small election for one of these big elections. I've had the same tradition for like the last six years since I started finding me in Seattle. Uh, and this was the first one that was different. I guess the last primary here in Seattle was the first one that was different. But usually, Amanda and I, we always go out to dinner and we fill out our ballot like at a, a, a local business, right? Hmm. We sit at dinner, we have dinner, uh, we always have the books uh, that we get our mail in and we like fill it out and we have a discussion. And it's always like, um, it's always just like a fun night. And I've always promoted that on my stories. And this year, obviously very different. I ain't going out and sitting at a restaurant to fill out this ballot. Uh, but same thing, I filled it all out. We did, the, we did a similar thing at home. And I always just love walking to that mailbox, right? On election yeah. day, like first thing in the morning, uh, always documented a little bit on my story. And so put, put my ballot in the mailbox. Great to see uh, a lot less crowded than the mailboxes normally are. Usually there's like a line of people just waiting to drop it in the mailbox. Uh, but so oh, many wow. So many people voted early and we get home and I like create a whole schedule for Tuesday to distract me. Right. I was like, there's no point in look, looking at any of this news or any of the information until at least 8 PM. So I like stacked up my whole day with like meetings and activities and things to do. Um, and between 8 PM and midnight though, was just dead staring at the TV, right? <laughs> Watching number by number by number coming in, like cheering, like getting nervous. You experience all of the emotions in one day, um, especially with seeing how things were getting counted, right? And and some of the, like, no one really knew how they were going to count the election. I mean, you could if, if you did the research, but I wasn't aware of like, oh, every state's going to do this differently. I think we should have assumed that by our other conversation that everyone does voting differently. Uh, but it was crazy yeah. to watch. Like some states decided to do the early votes and mail-in ballots first, and some did them later. And so to see all the change, um, and for a lot of Tuesday night, I was preparing myself for a Trump victory. It was starting to look that way very, very early on to me, um, especially when uh, when he got Florida in, in a handily way, it, it, it was a little concerning for me. Um, and then on Tuesday night, right? So it's like midnight and it's like, all right, we're definitely not gonna get the results tonight. 
Huh. Amanda and I had, had this big debate about what we we're going to do. Because the one thing I didn't want to do is wake up on Wednesday and like take an adrenaline shot of fear or excitement based off the election results. So like I intentionally didn't sleep by my phone. I put my phone out in the living room um, and I didn't have, I didn't want, cause I didn't want to wake up and like go look at it. Um, Amanda had a very different opinion of doing that, but um, I, yeah, I woke up on Wednesday and I, like, I prepared myself, like I sat there for a couple of minutes, like, all right, we're gonna walk out to this living room and like, we're gonna figure out the future of the world. Um, and I walked down and was like, nothing had changed right? Like not very many votes had been counted in the morning. And then that kept going on. But I spent the next four days, like just staring, going back between CNN, ABC, NBC, and Fox News, just to see like what all the different mainstream media perspectives were um, every single day, right? And I would say Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of that week, my productive productivity was extremely low. Didn't really do anything. I couldn't think about anything else, right? Like it was just constantly like, how many votes came in from what state? What's Arizona doing? What's Nevada doing? What's Pennsylvania doing? Where's Georgia? Joe's coming back in Georgia. Go, like, go Georgia, go Georgia. Like it, it was, it was made the, now in hindsight, it was the most entertaining sport I've ever watched. Um, <laughs> like it, it's, I'm glad that I can feel that way now because when I went to bed on Tuesday, I, I was really worried that the election was going to go a different direction. It's nice to feel like, okay, uh, at least we had this small win and looking back, it was like, Oh, that, that was a great world series um, of back and forth. And it felt like a sporting event, the way those, the, the numbers came in, it, it was um, yeah. exciting and terrifying all at the same mm -hmm. time. So, so how was it for you? No, it was very similar. It's just funny. I was just like, like I'm laughing at all of this because I, I felt a lot of those emotions. And I would say something. Um, okay, so the first thing I actually want to ask about here is um, what did you eat? Because you said you didn't go to a restaurant. So what did you eat? Did you get like Uber Eats or did you do takeout? Or I, I actually don't remember. Um, oh gosh, wow! I I didn't like do an intentional meal this time. The whole okay. process was really like thrown off. Um, yeah, usually I'm very intentional about where I choose, but yeah, even with Find Me in Seattle, my um, intention with eating has kind of like gone out the drain. I can't remember what I had last yesterday. Uh, it's all like well, well I'm, not, I'm not sure what I ate on uh on Mon on Monday night this okay last well. Week. I just, well, yeah, I guess most people probably can't remember what they <laughs> ate. I, the only reason I asked was because you you mentioned, I see, I remember exactly what I what I had on Tuesday night, but uh, last week. But you, the reason why I was asking that is because I know that you mentioned that it's a part of a ritual. And so I thought, well, maybe there was some intentional meal that you had that you just, you know, you just got it a different way. Um, and you posted something recently that is still on my mind. I don't know how to find it here, but you went to this Thai food truck and that food looked so good that I missed good Thai food because Seattle has great Thai actually. Great Thai and um, I don't know where to find that around here. So uh, it's, it, th I was hoping maybe you were going to say you had Thai. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I mean, I, I eat Thai food every single week, like almost, almost guaranteed. Uh, my, my wife is uh, from Thai descent her, her mom is from Thailand. And so, uh, and I live within like four blocks. I have five Thai restaurants. So oh, we wow. pretty much like have, uh, we have a dish that we love at each one. They kind of all have their, their specialty in our eyes now. 
Uh, but when you get back, we'll, we'll have to go eat some Thai food when, when it's safe to do so. Yeah, well, I definitely have some spots that I like. So, yeah, we can get into that another time. Because yeah. um, <laughs> I could go all day about these places. So, um, all right. So, the other thing I wanted to mention that you, you brought up was a part part of my feeling as I was watching these results, just like everyone else. I think, I think to your, you know, something you said as well, that, you know, productivity was down. I mean, I think that was true. Like, I was, of course, you know, I work from home and I, I'm on online and video calling with my coworkers all day. And that's all everyone was talking about was what's, what did you hear? When was the last update? What state just said what? And you know, it, it it's just, it was just all consuming at, for the last week and nothing changed. That was the crazy part. Nothing changed for days. Like we didn't get another update until Saturday. And so it was like, Tuesday and then nothing. And it was like, okay, it's 253. It's still 253. The number is 253 for electoral votes for Biden. The number, nothing changed. It just didn't move. And it was like, it was like time just stood still for three, four days. Now, in that time, I really learned a lot about how other states run their electoral systems. It was fascinating to me to listen to the press conferences from the different election officials from every state, because what it pointed out to me very clearly, you know how I am about like things need to have standard processes. That is a risk, I think, to our system. The decentralized nature of it, I actually think is a very a strength of our system that it is decentralized like that. But the the variation, I think, is a problem because yeah. it people don't know how it works. Like, you know, you may or may not know how it works in your state, right? The, elect the electoral system. But this is a group project. And what I felt like was this was the worst group project in the history of group projects. Because as you're sitting there, you're, you're like, okay, well, well Washington State, we, we, we did our part. Texas, we did our part. California, we did our part. You know, what's going on with Arizona? Like, hey, we're waiting for you to turn in your part of the of the project. Uh, Georgia, come on, pick it up. <laughs> like, that is the issue with this. And the reason why things were slow, to your point about the variation in the processes, it has to do with just that, that like, Pennsylvania, by law, could not start counting mail-in ballots until midnight on election day, whereas other states were counting mail-in ballots first. Some states decided we will count all of the in-person election day first, and then we'll count all of the mail-in and early voting after. I mean, it's ridiculous, because in that gap of time that we're all sitting there, all of us around the country waiting to, for these results, you have conspiracy theories. You had people showing up to the polling locations with, you know, banging on the window saying, let us in. They're, they're accusations of voter fraud. Like, that's the problem. That's why you need to have a standard process that everyone can understand and can be transparent. Now, yes, there was, a, there was great transparency because there were video cameras inside of these polling places. People are counting and you can watch on live TV. Live TV, they were showing people counting votes. What have you ever seen that? Like that was what the story was and you're sitting there watching on CNN, someone just sitting there counting votes by hand. Okay, that's great. I, I, I'm glad we have that level of transparency. But we need a standard process across the country so that people can continue to believe that the system is working. And what I was most concerned about was that there were too many people questioning, is this system working properly? And once you start to have people lose trust in the system, it actually 
threatens, I say, the whole the whole thing, right? Like all of democracy. If you can't if you cannot trust that your vote is going to be counted. And on the flip side, right, the lawsuits that were going on immediately, which immediately. we knew were we knew were coming. Those lawsuits were very clearly targeting the places where vote counting was happening, and the goal was to get those votes thrown out. And the 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 goal very specifically was to stop counting. Stop the count. Stop counting in a democracy. Stop counting votes. That to me, right there, I I, w- I was so. I don't even know how to feel about that. At, at the moment, I was like, I can't even believe this is happening. Like, I still can't even believe. It. I was listening to a podcast this morning about um, a a poll. I don't know if she was an election. Of, I guess she was an election official in Detroit, and her, you know, sort of documenting her memory of her, her day and week, kind of dealing with people showing up to the polling location and threatening her and all of these things. And they actually played some of the sound and it during the podcast. And I just thought to myself, this is crazy. This, this, this is going beyond just being upset at the results because what she also pointed out um, was something that I hadn't thought about. She said, you know, I'm in Detroit. And while in Detroit, you, this is a, a city that is, that, you know, is blue and in a County that ultimately is blue. The same thing that happened there happened in other cities that are that have large African American populations. That's number one. So that happened in Philly. That happened in Atlanta. Happens happened in Detroit. Okay. So these are all of the places where we're waiting for votes to be counted. But also, what she mentioned about Detroit, she said, you know, they didn't go to Ann Arbor, right? They didn't go to Ann Arbor, Michigan where there's a very, there's a, you know, a lot of liberal, you know, white professors, and they also voted blue there. They didn't go there. And then she mentioned another like city that I'm not familiar with. And she said, you know, there there are a lot of wealthy people there that also voted blue. They didn't go to those places. And those places have smaller African-American populations. And so the only conclusion one can draw is that your argument for stopping the count, your argument for voter fraud is targeted towards African-American voters. You are trying to suppress the vote of African-American voters, which is exactly what we have been dealing with since the very beginning of the right to vote for African-Americans in this country. So I think me seeing that may have been a little bit different maybe than how other people saw it, but I kept, I just saw here comes history, repeating itself and showing up again and again and again and again and right now in this moment i'm watching it on live tv and it's it's it was frightening i guess maybe that is the best way i can put it yeah it totally was and and for for the accusations coming out from the president right with like very little evidence so let's say the president and a lot of his staff and his children right putting out all these conspiracy theories where in one state we have protesters who show up to the polling stations in Pennsylvania or Philadelphia, uh, I believe mm-hmm. it's Philadelphia, and they're banging on the windows, right, saying stop the count. And then uh, conversely, we have Arizona, where a bunch of protesters, uh, let, let's point out, uh, all these protesters are white. Um, yeah. they, they show up to Arizona, and they're, not, they're, you know, marching outside the polling stations, and they're saying count the vote. 
right? Because at this mm. point, Joe Biden has the lead by like 400,000 there. So we've yeah. got people who are on the same side who mostly voted for the same person uh, chanting the exact opposite things on yeah. their side. And it's, it's when you're watching it and you're seeing them cut back and forth between these two, it's, it's mind-blowing, right? And at the same time, yeah. um, I know I don't want to talk about Donald Trump, but, but uh, his terribleness needs to be mentioned for the sake of history, right? He's, he's declaring victory on Tuesday, right? Saying that he should win because he's ahead by so many votes. At the same time saying, oh, and there's all of this fraud happening, right? But the votes that haven't been counted in Arizona, those are legitimate. But the, ca- the votes that haven't been counted in Pennsylvania, those are illegitimate, right? Mm-hmm. And he's contradicting himself and just putting out all this information uh, that is just not true. There's no proof. There's no evidence. Um, and all these are coming out on Twitter. Twitter's flagging every single post. So when you go to Donald Trump's Twitter, all it is is blank tweets that you have to uh, opt in to view because he's just um, he's just spewing nonsense and uh, he's lying. He's he's lying. He's lying, and he's just like just puking nonsense all over the internet for everyone to see. And yeah, absolutely despicable. Um, not presidential at all. And um, yeah, like just and Connor, we we should note as we sit here, more than a week past the election, he still has not conceded. He has not conceded yet, and a lot of people in his party have also not conceded, right? They haven't congratulated Joe Biden. Almost the entire world, ha- um, and at least in the perspective of leadership, have acknowledged that Joe Biden is the president-elect. And we have things going on right mm-hmm. now um, up to, uh, at this point, when Donald Trump won four years ago, he started getting the presidential uh, uh, security briefings in the morning every day. Donald Trump's not, supposedly, from what I've read, he doesn't read those anyways anymore. Uh, but Joe Biden still hasn't gotten some of that information, right? And so Donald Trump is doing everything he can to entertain himself, uh, right? With no evidence, no support. Uh, What he's putting out in the world is also not what's being reflected in the courts either. Um, I know Wall Street Journal reported yesterday about how all of a lot of the court filings that are being submitted uh, don't match up with what Donald Trump said. Uh, right, just because there's not really any evidence, right? Nothing. There's no happen. evidence. There's no evidence. It's it's really just uh, appealing to the conspiracy side of his um, his base and 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 trying to build that up. And he he's treating America like it's um, a game show and not you know our our democracy on the line. Um, what game show? What game show? Is it Survivor? Is it Big Brother? Uh, I'm sure it's Real Housewives. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out like what, what what show are we talking about? Because I mean, he remember he he's the reality show president. I mean, he was on one of the biggest reality. He was the the star of one of the biggest reality shows f- at, at the time that it was on TV. Right before he became president, and uh, so. Is, is it The Apprentice? Is this The Apprentice? Because if this is The Apprentice, then the American people just told him he's fired. Like, that's his, that was his big catchphrase, right? You're fired. Well, the American people, at least half of them, the half that voted for Biden, they voted. I, 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 I've said this before. I don't know if I said this on the show or not, but I've said before that I don't know that always in this situation that people were voting for Joe Biden as much as they were voting against Donald Trump. And... You know, I think for the half of America that voted 
against Donald Trump. I think that is significant. And the message is, you're fired. And that's what, that is the whole point of democracy, right? That is what we're allowed to do in a democracy. That's why we vote. If we didn't have a system like this, then we would just get who is selected for us. And in this particular case, the system, as it is designed, flaws and all, it seems to have worked for the half that showed up to vote. But there are always going to be sore losers out there in the world. And, you know, I think for me, I, I looked at two things, right? How you end up with a Donald Trump has everything to do with how the system is designed. And also how you end up with a Joe Biden has everything to do with how the system is designed. Um, and so I think there's still going to be a lot of unsatisfied voters out there on both sides. And I don't mean that they're the same group of people necessarily, but what by that I mean, if you voted for Trump, you had a very clear reason why you voted for Trump, and he is not going to be the president. If you voted for Biden, that doesn't necessarily mean you voted for him because he was the person you wanted to see elected as president. He was the option that you had who was not Donald Trump. Yeah. So you may not be satisfied with his administration, right? So if you're not satisfied with his administration, what are you going to spend your time thinking about and working on? And that for me, I think is probably the, the bigger conversation that we are not having right now is that, you know, on Saturday, last Saturday, Joe Biden was declared the winner. Uh, but what I saw was people in the streets. I saw people dancing, people having a wonderful time because in that moment, I think that they were celebrating the fact that, the half of the country that voted against Donald Trump won. Their voices were heard. They were able, all the organizing that has happened, all of the posts on social media saying, go vote, go vote, go vote. We talked about that last episode. It worked. Everything worked. This was, we had the biggest turnout in the history of the country, right? On both sides. On both sides, yeah. On both sides. But now... What policy do you care about? What, how do you want to see that enacted, right? Or what, what do you want to see happen now? And I think uh, if your number one issue is, say, coronavirus, well, we'll probably see some immediate changes there. If your number one issue is, say, systemic racism, I don't know. That, that might not be, that might not be your, your ticket that's going to get you what you want. Um, if your number one issue is climate change, might be a little, a little progress, a little, but I think this is where I see things starting to be very challenging in the next four years. Also, I should mention, right, we have, uh, we're going to talk about Georgia in a minute, but we also have a runoff race there that is very significant that's coming. So we still don't know what is the balance of power going to look like uh, in the Senate. So when we think about there is more work to do, it's all of that stuff, right? Um, there's still more work to do. Um, but coming back to just just the feeling, I was one other thing I wanted to point out, just the feeling of last week before we get into where we are today. The other thing that I want to point out to the, the folks who are listening to our program in, in the future is that what I hope comes out of this and I, what I hope starts to show up, and maybe I'll be a part of helping to make this happen uh, through my, my you know, efforts in the tech space, 
is that it is easy to, to look at a map of America and say, well, I live in this state and I only need to care about my own voting system or my, the own, my own problems that exist here. But if you look at coronavirus, we're all in this together. If you look at climate change, we are all in this together. Uh, if you look at systemic racism, we are all in this together. So it doesn't matter what your issue is. Uh, what actually is really important is that you have an understanding of who the other members of the group are that have you have to work with to get the project done. And so when I think about, you know, the fact that a, you know, sure, Washington State can vote blue, California can vote blue. Um, you Texas didn't vote blue. So you now if you are looking for a blue candidate to win the presidency, you're reliant upon other states doing their work. But if you don't understand that and understand how to support that, then you run the risk of having a, another version or even the same version of a Trump presidency because the system itself is the same. It has not evolved at all so in, in the entire four years. We've been, we've, we've been witnessing what looks like to me and to many people as someone who is trying to install themselves as America's first dictator. So if you don't want that to happen, then you have to continue to fight for voting rights at the local level, at the state level, and you have to continue to be active in your communities, but also you have to understand what's going on in the other places. What, what are the issues there around the voters having access to the ballot box? Because one thing that I'm very sure will happen now is that will be addressed in a, in a systemic way that will not be very obvious to people. And it will be something that will become very clear the next time there's an election. So we have to keep our eyes on these things. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that more and more that Georgia flipped blue. That wasn't supposed to happen. That, that is the, if Texas is a voter suppression state, that is your number two voter suppression state. And we're going to get into a little bit of that in a minute. But I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, Arizona flipped. That wasn't supposed to happen. Nevada flipped. That wasn't supposed to happen. And you still have Republicans that control those state legislatures. And they get to choose how the districts will be drawn after the census data is released. See, this is a, when we talk about strategy, we're talking about systems, Okay. This is how this game is going to be played out over the next four years. We're going to have Republican-controlled legislatures drawing the district lines. They're going to also pass new laws. Those laws are going to be restrictive. They're going to be all kinds of things, things maybe we've seen in the past. We can have new poll taxes show up. We can have new voter ID laws show up. We can have, you know, different types of restrictions on what you can and cannot do in terms of a county election official determining, can you have curbside voting? Can you have drive-through voting? Can you, is it all in person? Can you have mail-in voting? Who gets to vote by mail? All of those things are going to be a part of tactics to reduce the power of the voter who is not going to vote red. And that is something we have to stay on top of. And it may not happen in a state that you live in, right? It may be happening in a state that you don't live in, but that doesn't mean it's not your problem because you need those people to be able to have success, successfully access the ballot box in order to get the project complete. So well said, so well said. Yeah, I, I love how when you started, you talked about like the three major things that people 
uh, are kind of voting on this year and how those are all nationwide issues. And it's very mm-hmm. easy um, for someone just to be like, oh, not my state, not my problem, not my county, not my problem. Uh, not, you know, it doesn't directly affect me right here and right now. So I don't got to worry about it. Um, but you do need to be on top of all of those different issues and how things are changing. And we saw, I, I know in another episode, we're going to talk more about the movie All In because you and I have, have discussed that privately a bunch. Uh, but when, yeah. when elections happen like this, uh, like when o- Obama got elected, right? A lot of things changed over the next eight to 12 years that, that not a lot of people were very aware of that pretty much at that time was like, oh, Obama got elected. We don't have racism anymore. That means we can get rid of all of these rules that um, were protecting voter rights. Um, and and we've, back, we've regressed a ton on a lot of those things, right? Yeah. And so, uh, unfortunately, that back and forth, um, a lot of the damage that is done isn't even done on the Trump level. It's done uh, behind closed doors with, with little things and little decisions that, that we don't see. Uh, the one more thing before we kind of get into the breakdown of, of Georgia is um, it, it was phenomenal to see Saturday morning, millions of people dancing in the streets, right? Literally dancing in the streets in celebration. That doesn't happen very often in America, right? It looked like it, we were in a third world country election, right? That we, <laughs> that we yeah. took down a dictator, right? And we, it, it looked like it was our first election ever, um, right? Like, and, and, for how beautiful of a thing that is, it's, it's equally terrifying, right? Of like on the brink of where we were. But when millions of people dance in the street because you lost your job, um, that that's very telling. Um, yeah. Very telling. Uh, but then at the same time, I know you brought this up a lot, 70 million people still voted for Donald Trump, right? Yes. Um, and, and 70 million in county. Um, yeah, right now, 72 million versus Joe Biden, 78 million, right? So that's a lot of people who that's a lot of uh, people. who did not feel the same way as everyone dancing in the street, which, which is, is really, really scary. Uh, but, but let's go into a little bit of detail, right? Because you mentioned earlier that Georgia flipped blue. First time it flipped blue since uh, Bill Clinton in 94. And yes. um, Georgia had so much focus because of the way the votes were counted and the timeliness of the vote and how it all happened. Uh, a lot of us were rooting for Georgia and, uh, um, you know, expecting this comeback. I know you're not a big sports guy, but on the internet, there were a lot of sports references. Uh, Atlanta's had a rough go in sports lately. Uh, a couple years ago, they had the, the worst meltdown in Super Bowl history against the Patriots at a huge lead and the Patriots came back and beat them. Um, and so there have been these sports moments where Atlanta teams have had leads and then lost them. Um, so to have this narrative of uh, this comeback for the people, a lot of Atlanta to like put this comeback out there and have the whole world be watching um, was, was just from a sports narrative, very cool to watch. Uh, but we want to talk about how that happened a little bit, right? And, and give some, some due to the people that have been working on that uh, for for a lifetime, for decades, uh, but obviously it's getting a lot of of attention right now, right? And it starts with Stacey Abrams. Everyone's hearing about Stacey Abrams, uh, but there are also some other people that deserve a shout out. I know you really wanted to make sure they got their name 
heard, right? And, and Absolutely. We so I'll let you start um, with, with some of those names. Okay, so 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 here's here's one name that so we're going to talk about black women. This is this is really key, right? That um, all of the names I'm going to read are going to be the names of black women. But um, I also want to mention, you know, we just lost John Lewis, and John Lewis represented a district in Georgia, and so it was so partly, you know, he, he a great voting rights activist we've talked about on the show, uh, someone that uh, inspired me, someone who I've posted uh, on the Next Up Instagram page. Uh, and so I think also when I think, when I think about Georgia and Atlanta specifically, I just think about the, the, the historic nature of what just happened, that Georgia being a part of the South, a part of this, um, legacy of voter suppression and the people there have organized so hard over the last uh four years to be able to overcome that and you know Stacey Abrams I knew her name uh from a couple of years ago when she ran for governor and lost and that's when I became aware of a lot of the voter suppression tactics taking place there and what was very significant about her run there was that she would have been, if she had won, the uh, first black governor in the history, or sorry, black female governor in the history of the United States. And she, I believe, based on the circumstances, I believe that, you know, when we talk about voter fraud, there was some fraud there, and it was within the bounds of the system. So, the governor who won, or the person who won, the candidate who won, Brian Kemp, was also at that time the person who was able to certify the votes. So he was both the candidate and the judge. <laughs> and so you think about how uh, much of a conflict of interest that is. Wouldn't you make sure that you win? <laughs> I mean, was there, even even if there was no fraud. Now there's a question, there's a cloud hanging over you, right? So Stacey Abrams saw that. She also was very well aware of all of the tactics that had started um, to take shape. Uh, and, and she built a nonprofit called Fair Fight. And she has focused on that for the last two years. She's written books and she's done all of the interviews. I've listened to so many interviews with her. Um, I've started listening to her book as an audio book. Um, she was a part of the movie All In. I think it's very much around. Uh, I haven't finished watching it, but we will get to that eventually. Um, and it, it's very much around the work that she's been doing. And in the last week or so, I think everybody on social media now knows her name if they did not know it before. But the thing about what we seem to do as a culture by celebrating the individual, we forget that the individual is not alone in any of their work ever. So there are always others and they need to be acknowledged too, because there are going to be people who are named and people who are unnamed. So Stacey Abrams has a staff. That is just a fact. Just like every leader that we celebrate has a staff, they have a team. But in this particular case, she also organized with other organizers. So her staff and her team 
are, while they may be unnamed, they weren't the only folks who were participating. There were leaders of other organizations that she worked with collectively to really bring new voters to this election. So I want to start off, before I get into their names, I just want to start off with when we talk about their impact, I want to, I want to read a few numbers to you, okay? So 1.2 million African Americans in Georgia voted, and that's up from 500,000 in the 2016 election. So that's huge. That doesn't happen normally. Now, these organizers helped to register more than 800,000 new voters. This is why Georgia flipped blue. This and this alone. If people don't take anything else away from this election, it's that there is power in numbers. There is power when you come out and you participate in the democratic process. Something I want to mention though, um, I don't know the numbers in, in Georgia, but one of the things that I observed through working on, you know, trying to launch an app to serve the Harris County voters was that in Harris County, uh, Texas, there were 1.6 million voters uh, during this election cycle. And that was great. That was more than in 2016. But Harris County has 3 million registered voters. So just over half actually showed up. And I suspect that that is the same in Georgia, in Fulton County. So that means this work has to continue because what's to come for Georgia specifically and for all of us is a runoff election in the Senate. And I was listening to a podcast, I believe it was The Daily um, by New York Times earlier this week, where they talked a little bit about the structure of that system, which I didn't know anything about in that state. Um, I'm worried actually about that. And my hope, and I already see Stacey Abrams and, and the folks that I'm about to, whose names I'm about to mention, I've seen that they are already organizing. They're already, they've already moved to the next, the next chapter. And that is the next chapter. And that, that's going to determine the balance of power in the Senate for all of us. And it's going to determine the success or failure of the policies that we feel like we have voted for when we cast a ballot for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So, the other organizers I want to mention that I want to recognize to make sure that um, their names are documented somewhere in a podcast, uh, it's Tamika Atkins, Deborah Scott, Helen Butler, and I, I, I apologize to the next person because I do not know how to pronounce this name. It looks like Nisi Ufot. I'm not sure it's N-E, it's N-S-E. That's the first name. And then U-F-O-T. I tried to find her on Instagram. Unfortunately, it didn't look like she had a very active profile. So I was hoping she had one of those kind of profiles where she put the pronunciation of her name. <laughs> so these are the other organizers who lead organizations in Georgia. And they were significant, um, just as significant as Stacey Abrams at and she also acknowledged them, just to be clear, because she saw that people were only giving her the credit, but she made sure she gave them the credit too. So, um, you know, those, those folks, I'm very grateful for them. Those Black women, I am grateful for those Black women because they showed up for America. 
and they've been showing up for America, right? They didn't just show up on election day, right? Like they were going out, they saw the writing, they've seen the writing on the wall probably for their entire lives, right? Um, and they've been out there doing it before so many people even knew that that was going to be an issue, right? And they saw that, hey, if we get these people out, we get them registered, we can change uh, what our society looks like. And yeah. I, I, I hope that um, this team is put on some type of task force or some type of committee so we can replicate and um, duplicate and put this out into every state, right? Yeah. Like, because they've created a process. It's a very manual process, very labor intensive, uh, kind of goes against how we feel about uh, with technology and everything that we're working with, but like get people on the ground in the streets, talking with people and, and filling out the paperwork, doing everything we can to get people to, to like I said, participate in the democratic process because it is a foundation of how we are going to make change. There's lots of more things that need to happen. Um, but what they did is absolutely incredible. And I love that, that you wanted to mention them on this, on the show. Um, I'm going to make sure their names get highlighted too. I'll put them up on text here on the show so we see them. Cool. And uh, yeah, thank you to all of those black women who are changing our country um, by the work that they did. They deserve the recognition. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. So one, one thing I, uh, that you mentioned that I wanted to, to also say is that, um, you know, as we think about these black women in this particular election, you, you did say, you know, there have been black women who have been doing the work. And I also wanted to mention, there's a book out there. I haven't read it. Um, I want to get it um, because I just heard about it this morning. It's called Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. And it's by Martha S. Jones. And um, I was reading an article where this book was mentioned. And I, I just wrote down the names of some of the other black women who have been leading the fight for voting rights since, well, it's been going on since forever, but at least within the, this article, it started with the uh, 1850s. And I wanted to just make sure that we acknowledge those women, because while we're talking about um, modern day voting rights activists, there have been from the very beginning of, I, I would say, you know, people of African descent in this country, there have always been people fighting for the rights to participate in the system fully. And the names that the article mentioned um, were, some of them I knew, some of them I didn't. And I just also want to, for the voters of the future, I want them to find this book, I want them to go back and read about these particular women and understand that the language of voting rights and the strategies of uh, voting rights really developed over time. And it developed with the leadership of black women who have often been forgotten by history and are not mentioned when we talk about, even now when we're talking about what the contributions of black women have been. We only talk about them in a contemporary context as if no other women ever came before them. And this is not a new problem. So 
this country that we live in, the United States, is 244 years old. Um, the first uh, enslaved peoples from Africa arrived, as we understand it, in 1619. That's 401 years. So I'm going to make the argument that for at least 401 years, <laughs> there have been people who have asked to be full participants uh, in, in this system. And one of, one of the earlier documented um, stories that we know about more broadly is that of Sojourner Truth, who gave the I Am A Woman speech in Massachusetts in the 1850s. We also know the name of Harriet Tubman. They often are referred to as suffragists for women's rights and for you know the woman's right to vote but when women can vote that means and especially if black women can vote that means everyone can vote right so i want to make sure we're clear on they weren't just women they weren't just women who were advocating for women's rights to vote they were advocating for everyone's right to vote and be full and equal citizens they did not see that in their lifetimes. Next, in the 1900s, we had Ida B. Wells, Juno Frankie, Juno Frankie Pierce, Maddie E. Coleman, Mary Church Terrell, Nanny Helen Burroughs, Septima Clark, Fannie Lou Hamer. Some of these names have become more prominent in recent years, and I've listened to some podcasts about these individual women and the work that they did in their lives. I need to learn more about them because they, some of them from what I have read about were very radical for their times. They'd be radical for now. And I think there's a lot that I can learn. And as I look to continue the legacy of, of fighting for voting rights in this country, but doing it through technology, um, I, I, I want to look to their example. I want to I want to be led by their thinking and I'm glad that we've taken a moment to honor and acknowledge the work that has come before um, and I think and my hope is that for the voter of the future that they do the same and also continue the legacy. Well, I thank you because I didn't know any of those names either until you kind of brought them to my attention that says, hey, not only in what's happening with Georgia in 2020, but let's talk and look into the women in American history that have also, you know, been fighting for this for centuries now, right? Um, and the little progress that we are continually showing, uh, taking plenty of steps back uh, over that time, right? You think about what these women in the early 1900s were fighting for and where we are now, Um is shows how hard the work is and how long it is going to take. Um, yeah. and, and so you talked a little bit, this, this wasn't necessarily on our agenda, but I know we talked about it, about the, the right for all people to vote. And you and I have had some discussions about the demographic turnouts and, and changes and everything. So I want to talk about that a little bit here. Um, and, we're, and we'll go into all of them because at least and, and you and I kind of had a, a heated text discussion about this. Um, and so I wanted to hear kind of. I didn't feel like it was heated, though. I didn't feel like it was heated. I, it was it was it was certainly lively. <laughs> it was lively. It was lively. Um, and 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 uh, 
look like it, it was it I, I felt intense I was like oh man uh, at the time but but the from from a storytelling perspective and the narrative I thought the election the way it was it was unfolding was so poetic um, in in this uh, it, it it felt like a movie so in June um, George Floyd is murdered and we go through we've, we've had months of protest and change and lots of people people who look like me um, doing deeper exploration about the history of racism uh, the the things that they do every single day that have added to the inequality in the world and then we get to this mm-hmm. election and not only we mentioned all these uh, black women who are making a huge difference to change the election, but as the votes are coming in, what we're seeing is uh, Donald Trump is leading in, in most of these states. And then we see Detroit, Philadelphia, and Atlanta all having ballots still coming in, right? Cities that are predominantly black, right? Uh, historically suppressed, right? And, those votes are the ones that are getting counted last and coming in and flipping the narrative and the direction of where the, the election was going to where we got to this point where all of a sudden it was like, oh, Joe Biden won um, Wisconsin, he won Minnesota, he won mm-hmm. Michigan, Georgia, Pennsylvania. And I also want to give a shout out to Arizona because uh, Arizona went blue a lot thanks to uh, all of the votes by Native Americans and all those yes. tribes that turned out. They deserve a huge shout out for what they did in Arizona as well. And these uh, oppressed groups of people coming and because their votes came in or were counted last, it just happened to be the narrative of like, look at these communities changing the election. Um, that was just circumstance because of the way votes were counted specifically in those states. But uh, yeah. But, but you and I kind of went back and forth. And, 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 and so what do you think about that? Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on that before we kind of keep going? And then uh, we, I want to address the people who voted for Donald Trump as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, the reason why we were going back and forth on that was because you were like, oh, this is great. And I was like, um, actually, I don't, I don't agree with the way the story is being told because it sounds as if, you know, the voters in these states were somehow doing something different than what all the other voters were doing. But it, it was what they should have said is that the process we talked we talked about this earlier, that the process prioritized other people's votes first. So the reason why so many uh, black voters were voting by mail was because of the pandemic they were concerned about going and voting in person. And so in the places where it was an option for them, they took advantage of it. The Democratic Party really promoted that. So most of these voters voted blue. And so that's all there is to it. And for the election systems in those states, they prioritized the in-person vote that day, first on election day, and then the mail-in ballot after. And so this was already predicted to happen. And Donald Trump himself actually said that this was, this was his, his language strategy, right? So his language strategy before election day was, I will be shown to have been 
the winner on election day because all of the ballots that will be counted on election day will be for me because Republican voters traditionally vote in person on election day. That is exactly what happened. And he also said, any of these mail-in ballots are fraudulent, any of them. Any ballots that are counted after election day are fraudulent. So he was laying the groundwork for then what would become his legal argument. And while his legal argument may have fallen apart, Uh oh, we had a technical difficulty for all the listeners out there. The video people won't see this, but if you're listening to the podcast, <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're back. All right. So, um, so I, I, so what I was saying was that so Donald Trump laid the the sort of the the, the rhetorical foundation to then be, be able to have the public relations, <laughs> uh, so you know. Uh, angle that he could play, but then also it allowed him to have this foundation for why he was going to put these lawsuits for, forward. So the strategy was very clear from the very beginning. And I think what's important about that is we should not, although the narrative makes us feel good, to be able to say, well, look at that. These black voters, they showed up and then they just flipped this thing around. That's not what happened. They voted at the same time as everybody else. Yeah. And in fact, they probably voted before everyone else. <laughs> yeah. But their votes were not prioritized in the process. And that is the key. And this is why for me, it makes it, it's so important to understand the process because at the same time that we have to understand the process, we also have to understand how the process will be used against people and challenged because that's exactly what Republicans have been doing in Texas. It was the uh, drive-through voting in all of these other states where there were mail-in ballots. It was the mail-in ballot that they were challenging because they saw that as somehow um, an opportunity legally to be able to suppress votes because they could say, well, you know, the ballots were somehow cast, um, illegally. And that has been, to, to this day, we continue to hear that. And I believe we're going to continue to hear that for the next four years to cast doubt on the election system, but specifically where there are large populations of people of color, whether it's the Native American population in um, Arizona or the Latino population in Nevada or the African American population in Detroit, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Milwaukee, that is, that's the other side of this, right? That's the other side that we're, we might be thinking, hey, this is the great story that we want to tell ourselves that makes us feel good. The story that's being told on the other side is that these people are frauds. They're doing illegal things. They're trying to ruin democracy. Like that is what's being, that's the story. And I think we need to be really clear about that and understand that we have some work to do to strengthen our system. It is not enough to say, great, these folks turned out. Um, it is not enough to say that, yes, in this one election, in this one particular race, not in all of the races now, in this one particular race, 
these voters of color showed up and they over they they overcame all of the barriers the pandemic the systemic tactical voter suppression they overcame all of that whether they had financial issues or issues of transportation or whatever um, child care issues they overcame all of that to get their vote in we we shouldn't look at that as being in my view we shouldn't look at that as being the standard or to be great we we actually should work to make that better for people's lives. It should be easier to vote. And we shouldn't have to have these heroic stories of look at this giant group of people from one population um, overcoming all of this to cast a ballot. It, it, this is your constitutional right. It should be just as easy for someone who looks like you as it is for someone who looks like me. And it should be just as easy for someone who is disabled as it is for someone who is able, just as easy for a woman as it is for a man. That's what, what I, I take away when I hear about, when I hear that story, I'm like, no, 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 no. We, we focus on the wrong thing. Yeah, I, I mean, and you really opened up my eyes to that, right? Because I was, I was the one like cheering, like, oh, look at this narrative. Like, that's such a beautiful thing. And, and you really opened my eyes. It was like, yeah, but there's, there's like all this tale, like yet we're cheering this Disney fairy tale moment when it's like, it, it shouldn't have even had to be that way in the first place. Um, right. and, and I want to bring this up and I think we're gonna have a future episode about this. We, we've uh, kind of initiated the conversation. Um, yes, it's great that we're uh, all of these people of color showed up and they voted and they had their voice heard, but we can't discount the fact that, 70 million white people showed up and voted against that, right? And voted mm -hmm. against um, the safety of people who look like you, right? And um, supporting all the conspiracies and all the suppression and all of the terrible things, not only historically, but in the last four years that we have seen the, the, the lies and the name calling and all of the non-presidential things, like white people, what the hell? Like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's embarrassing. It's really embarrassing. Uh, we, we have a history as white people in America of uh, terrible, terrible, terrible decisions against our neighbors and our fellow citizens, also immigrants as well. Um, and there's a reckoning that's going to need to come in order for us to actually have the America that we all uh, have pie in the sky that we think America could be or what we want America to be or what we think the Constitution is designing America to be. And uh, white people think that exists, right? Because for most of white America, it does exist, right? Um, and we don't think about the ways the systems are built that 100x, probably more, benefit us because of the way we look, pretty much exclusively because of the way we look. Um, and there, this election, I hope, it, it was big on me, right? Because I was optimistic that we were going to have the, what everyone's saying, the um, repudiation of Donald Trump and all these people were going to fire him. And I mean, it was 1% difference. Yes, it was five, we're looking at 6 million votes, but 70 million people do not agree really with what we're saying at all right now. Um, right. And that is the, it, it's great. We, the people of color deserve all the applause and all of this credit. Yes. But as a culture of white people in a country that is at this point, 
majority still white. We, you and I both agree that eventually that's not going to be the case and that will be a big difference that's naturally going to happen. But we've got a lot of stuff to do. We got a lot of work to do within our own communities, right? I have family that I know uh, support the Republican Party um, and whether they voted for Trump or they didn't, um, I know people that voted for Trump. That's what it comes down to in my friend circle and in my family circle. And so it is our responsibility to continue to address and fight and advocate and stand up right? Because it's not acceptable. And, and there's more burden, there should be more burden on people who look like me to be the change. We are the, like, if we're the ones that have the power, it's going to be up to us to change that dynamic. And uh, yeah, white, white people as a whole, we, we've let you down, right? Like, and we got to do better and we can't, we can't give up, right? We, you know, this is a very small battle that we won. Great to to celebrate and cheer and dance in the street. Hopefully you're wearing a mask and, and you're practicing social distancing because that was a little concerning too. But like today, right? Things haven't changed systemically, right? Like great, like we got uh, two people in the White House, but there is so much more work to do in our local communities, in our personal relationships, in our places of work, uh, from top to bottom, that isn't isn't ending today, and it's not over. And uh, yeah, I want to put it out there: like white people, we gotta do better. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I mean, I don't even have any. I don't even want to like say anything else beyond that because you, that was so well articulated and I'm, I'm very appreciative of you saying that because you know what there are a couple of things that like triggered uh, our discussion on this topic yeah. you know uh, offline and it had a lot to do with some memes that I I guess you call these memes you know these days I don't know what's a meme and what's not because some things are more like informative and then other things I'll just call it some educational content but it was definitely an opinion piece <laughs> You know, because social media is where people get their news these days. And so, you know, maybe you would have read something like this in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And now you come across it on social media. I don't even know who the author of it was. I have no idea. But there were some there were some things about what you just said that would, you know, that resonated with me that I saw within that. And I and I sent it to you and I said, you know, part of it is in the the conversation right that we have it's like the voters the black voters who voted for trump or the 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 black voters who voted for biden or the latino voters who voted for trump versus voted for biden it's like okay but what about the white voters like white voters also are a group and i think that is the challenge right that in even within the media landscape there is so much focus on the other that we are dis and we're distracted by that sometimes when we really need to say, well, yeah, but what about the largest group and the standard that we are set, that, that is set, that creates the other, right? Yeah. So, so that I, I think I want, that's something I, I feel like now I, I want to, for us, as we have gotten to this point in our show that I'm like, okay, we can start to talk a little bit more about race. We can start to talk a little bit more about whiteness specifically right um because ultimately 
I agree with you 100% that there needs to be some focus and conversation around what, what does all of this mean when we talk about the future? What does this mean to white people? How does that look different versus how it looks to non-white people? I mean, I think, I think, I, you know, one of the things that I mentioned to you was that, you know, as a non-white person, for the most part, what whiteness is and how it exists in the world, because your entire lived experience is defined by otherness, by being non-white. So everything around you is framed that way. But one of the things that is very different when you are, when, when you're, when everything around you is the standard is that it becomes very easy to opt out of the conversation about, is this the right standard? <laughs> and so that has always been for me, a giant barrier to progress. And I believe we need to have a reckoning, not on race, but on whiteness. And what does that mean? How does it manifest itself in this entire socioeconomic system? I should say global socioeconomic system, not just this country. This is a global issue. So I, to me, I think it's, it is important. And I know that it's something that, I, you know, as we've talked about it, and as I've heard other people have the conversation, there is a level of discomfort that many people who identify as white feel when having this conversation. And, 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 and while there are people who are very comfortable you know, acknowledging privilege and acknowledging history. There are many people who are not because also wrapped up in this is wealth. Also wrapped up in this is power. Also wrapped up in this is ownership, right? And that is hard to talk about. That is hard to dismantle. And, and no one wants to be called a racist. No one wants to feel as if someone is pointing a finger at them. And I, I, can, I can see how it will be very difficult to have these conversations. But something you told me was that, you, that I you know, thought about a lot and I, and I agree with is that it actually is going to start with having one-on-one -on -one conversations that we, we may not get to, we will not be able to get to a, a, a national and international conversation without saying that as we go forward from here, from here, right? when we talk about doing the work, when we talk about action, this is it. So yeah, Biden and Harris, they're in office. That's great. We also have, you know, elected officials at the state level, the county level, city level. That's great. But we as individuals, we also have work to do because we are the voters. This is our country. This is our planet. So we have to have a conversation. And the way that we do that, the way that we start that is just like what we're doing right now. You and I are having conversations saying, listen, this is my perspective, this is your perspective. Here, let's inform our perspectives. Let's talk about it. Because your, your, your question that you posed back to me is, okay, well, what does action look like then? And I'm thinking, I don't know, this is a big issue. <laughs> but yeah. then when, you, when we talk about the conversation, well, that's not that big because that's, that's two people. You're someone I know, right? you know other people so you can have conversations with them. Um, I can have conversations with other people in my life and I think that's how we start because we have many more elections to come.
And we need voters to start to shift their perspective about what matters. We cannot solve problems if we continue to be individualistic, if we continue to be selfish in our, in our thinking. Well, it's just about the economy. I only care about the taxes and my paycheck. We are all in this thing together, whether it's the socioeconomic system or the issues of the planet. We all are in it together. It does, we cannot separate ourselves from that, no matter how comfortable it makes us. So for me, I do see you know, having conversations and being very specific about what we're talking about, not just to say, well, we're going to talk about race. No, we're going to talk about whiteness. <laughs> like that's like, that, that's the reality like that. I think we have to do that. And I think once enough of us are having those conversations and thinking about these issues, we can have, we can bring more people into the conversation. And as we're bringing people into the conversation, we can start talking about how are we going to make this world better? We will not solve the issue of race in our lifetimes, right? But we have to be thinking further along that there will be generations after us and we want them to live in a world that it doesn't look like this. We, we shouldn't have to have conversations about voter suppression that go all the way back to the 1800s. There's should let's let's try not to make that the legacy that we leave. Let's try not to make that what is their inheritance culturally, right? Uh, you a point I want to talk about quickly was the small conversations are social action, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, all right, what do we do? And those small conversations are are have can have as much of a big impact as a lot of these big other things. Like you and I had this text conversation uh, yesterday morning. And then I was on a zoom last night with my friends. Um, there were six of us. There was four white people, including myself, uh, my wife, who's Asian and uh, another guy who is native American. Right. And we had this conversation about whiteness. Um, and it was, it was like a continuation, right. And it was a, it was good. Right, because when I have a conversation with you about whiteness, it's very different than when I go talk with white people and we actually address like white identity, which is a conversation um, not in this explicit way that we had actually had before. Um, and these are pretty much the most trusted friends in my life. So that's a good place to start. Um, but it's great to like build that conversation and start having that and talking about identity um, and, and the things that we can do to change that narrative. And then uh, um, the, the one other thing that I want to give a tip on, I want to applaud you on how you, how you brought this up. Um, right. And it was through text messaging right away. I was like, this is not a great way through text message, but you and I commute a yeah. lot through text um, before we have this show. And you put it out in a very powerful way that uh, I, w I went through a whole roller coaster of emotions from like um, anxiety, uh, fear, curiosity, joy like i kind of went through all of it as i was like processing what you said to me but you just very kindly put it out there like saying i want to make sure connor that you're comfortable and i haven't talked about whiteness specifically because i didn't want to make you uncomfortable right uh, but we're at this point in the conversation that you know how do you feel about that and you even gave me the option to opt out right um and i think that is a really good learning lesson about if you want to have 
this conversation and you look more like Mr. Well-Traveled and you want to have the conversation with someone who looks more like me, um, that, uh, unfortunately, it sucks that we have to ask that. But having that empathetic approach was so beneficial for starting that conversation. And that is a great tip. Like if you want to be proactive about that, like you have to approach this conversation with empathy because it's intense. It's emotional. Everyone has very different experiences with this, no matter who you are, what you look like. And I just appreciate that you put that out there that you, uh, you just showed this care for me and my feelings that uh, I, I really admire that you did that. It was very thoughtful and very kind. And uh, it, it led to kind of this conversation and me thinking about it the last 24 hours um, and kind of that, that rant that I had about it was all stemmed from uh, the way that you approached me about it. So thank you. Wow. Uh, that <laughs> it was, I'm like, you rendered me speechless, which is not a common, <laughs> that doesn't happen often. So I'm just, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm very, glad to hear that and i'm glad that you feel that way and that you've been open you know and i, I appreciate you being open to the conversation um and yeah i mean as, as as friends one could say that sure i you know we can just talk about anything but i also recognize that it is not easy to have conversations particularly around whiteness. And so one thing that I don't want is that just because that's a topic that I want to bring up to, to make you in any way feel like that's something that we have to discuss, right? Yeah. Uh, Cause we don't have to discuss that. I could, there are plenty of people I could have that conversation with. Um, so, and I think the other thing for me was I've seen a lot of things over the last like four years, you know, people getting very aggressive and people just being like in your face, like, I don't care about how you feel. And I get that too. Yeah, yeah I do. Um, but I also don't feel like that is the approach that I want to take or, or that will lead to us being able to have a very productive conversation. Yeah. Um, and I think what I was really worried about was that like, if, if, if we go down a path that we can't come back from, that I also lose a friend. And I really value you as a friend. It, and, I, and I value anyone that I consider to be a friend. And there are many people that I'm friends with that I don't always see eye to eye with on whatever issue we are talking about. So it is not, this is not one in which I feel like I want to make a, you know, I, I want to plant my flag in this and say, it, you're going to talk to me about this and you're going to agree with me or, or <laughs> we can't even be friends anymore. Like that's just not going to happen. So, um, and so I, I thought, you know, how, what is the best way for me to approach this? I want, I, I feel a particular way about this topic and I want to have this conversation, but I also want to do it in a way that makes you feel like you can, come to the table with me, right? And be there with me in, in the conversation. And so I've, I've, I've been very, I have been thinking a lot about this because even in my work now, you know, I'll be next week or this week coming up, um, giving a presentation about uh, the Next Step app to my team. 
and my team is all that you know my team at work the people i work with they're all white so i'm the only only african-american on the team so i was thinking like you know how do i bring them into this discussion that's very much about being a marginalized person and helping them to be able to to fully participate right um I, I recognize many people run from conversations like that. And so I have to learn how to do that. That's part of what I have to do because what's important to me is that we make progress. What's important to me is that we use our platforms, whether it's in our jobs or whether it's our own podcasts or whether it's blogs or wherever we can to continue to push for progress. And as a as a form of action, these small conversations matter, but also our approach to the small conversations really matter too. Certainly, and and beyond just race, right? So many other things uh, with family, with the gender discrimination issues, with economic issues. Uh, there are so many learning lessons that you can apply to a lot of conversations uh, with how to approach people, and 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 yeah, that's a tough situation for you to be thrust in uh, to say, let's talk about this and address all these white people um, and, and discuss the topic of whiteness uh, is because, because white people are scared of that conversation, right? I think we've made improvements this year because of the George Floyd protests and a lot more people have opened their minds and done more self-reflection. And that's, you know, it's a good start, but it's going to have to continue to go because it it was very clear. We learned in this election that, those conversations didn't didn't go very deep across the country, right? Like yeah. it hit a lot of the major spots where there were big protests, right? I think that there was a decent impact here in Seattle, but but when you look at the votes, we still had, you know, 1.5 million people vote for Donald Trump here in Washington alone. Um, so there there's a long way to go to having these conversations. And just because you're in a blue state doesn't mean that your job's over or that you've done anything really worth much that that has changed. There's still a long way to go and a lot of conversations to have. And, and this, is a, this is a small start and, and I'm happy to be a part of it. And I, I just really appreciate that, that you brought it up in the way that you did. So we've been going for, for a long time here. Um, and, and I think we should do an episode about identity and we can really focus on uh, whiteness. Cause I've been thinking about that a lot more. It's, it's, uh, it's very interesting. I'll be way more conscious of it now moving forward. Um, because yeah, as a white person, I don't really think about being white as part of my identity where, um, being, being black is for you, right. For my, for my wife, Amanda, she's a first generation, uh, American. She's a woman. She's Asian. Like those are cornerstones of her foundation. And so, uh, just like evaluating myself, like I've never really, uh, what I look like in those terms haven't applied to me, but I think we need to have those conversations more. And so I think we should. Um, all right. Conclusion time. You got any final thoughts or things that we missed or things that you want to say to, uh, to start wrapping this up? Yeah. So if you're a voter in the future and you're listening to this, I hope you have enjoyed our perspectives today. Um, I hope that in the time that you're in, whether it's, you know, a few months from now, (laughs) or if it's, uh, say a few years from now, or even, you know, decades from now, I hope that, um, you keep your head up, stay encouraged. 
I'm, I'm hoping that you're listening to this because you need some inspiration. You need some foundational knowledge. Um, I'm hoping that things are not so challenging for you um, as they have been for us. Um, but I imagine that it is possible that uh, you're listening to this because there is something happening in your time that threatens um, your life and your future. And maybe you're looking for some tools and tactics. So I want uh, you to really think about our words today and know that we are optimistic in this moment for the future, and I hope that you will be as well. We are also committing at this moment to continuing to do the work that is the self-education work. So that is listening to podcasts. Maybe, I don't know if there will be podcasts in the future, but there'll be something to listen to. Um, so we're going to continue to read books and articles and have the conversations. We are going to support organizations that are uh, organizing on behalf of all voters. So I encourage you to do that in your time, whatever that looks like in your time, whatever the tools that you have are in your time. And remember in your time that just like our time and in previous times, that we are the ones who, are, who do have the power. We, we don't have to allow our systems to just be what they are. The status quo does not have to continue. It is up to us to be able to fight for that. And it may not happen immediately. Generally, that's not how things work. Uh, but us understanding that and working together and continuing to push forward, that will make life better in the short term and the long term. So please, whatever you're doing as you're listening to this, please continue that. Very well said. Very well said. Well, that concludes episode six of Community is a Verb. I want to say thank you to my wonderful co-host, Mr. Well-Traveled. I am Connor Kaysen. You can find us anywhere online. Uh, he is at Mr. Well-Traveled. I'm at Find me in Seattle. Uh, please reach out if you're listening to this. We'd also love to ask you to, if you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. We've got lots of videos coming out. We chop these up and have nice little segments. And uh, if you're listening to the podcast, please just scroll down. Give us those five stars. Write a review if you're so inclined that those reviews do a lot for us. And uh, we'd love to continue this conversation with you. So please uh, reach out somewhere on the internet and say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Mr. Well Traveled, I'll talk to you soon. All right. See you.